Doesn't get much better than that. If you would take your Bibles, go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 24 and 25 this morning. As you all know, yesterday marked a, a very tragic event in America's history. Twenty years ago yesterday, the tragic events of 9-11 took place. And we all remember where we were that moment when we, when we heard the news. We all remember the aftermath of that and what our, our country looked at. You think back 20 years ago, for instance, 20 years ago from today, September 12, 2001, people were struggling. Times were tough, weren't they? Nobody quite knew what was going on in the world. Everything was kind of up in the air. Nobody quite knew what, what, to, what to lean on or where to go. People were scared. People were struggling. And I think there's a little bit of a parallel to that. No, not equating it the exact same, but a little bit of a parable to, parallel to today as well. 20 years later, you look around our world and you think, what? People are scared. People are struggling. Times are tough right now for many, many people. Some people are struggling deeply. Some people are grieving. Some people's faith is being tested. But in God's providence, remember this, not everyone struggles at the same time. You ever notice that, about how God works? Not everyone struggles at the same time. There are those who are hurting, but there are also those who can help. So what do we do? How do we help those that are hurting? How do we help those that are in need? Because honestly, sometimes if you're in the position to help, do you not sometimes feel helpless to help? You ever said the phrase, let me know if there's anything I can do for you? Secretly hoping that they really don't ask? Because honestly, you don't know what you would do. Are you with me with that? I don't know what I would say to help them. I don't know what I could do. I don't know what I could offer for them. If they really do come to me and say, well, you had said, oh, no. Sometimes we do feel helpless to help in some way. And I hope today, from Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, we will learn a unique way that the Bible shows us that we can help one another help one another. Now, that sounds a little strange. But the Bible shows us here in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 how we can help one another help one another. So if you would, let's read verses 19 through verse 25 of Hebrews 10. Now this passage comes right after Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, where the author here really shows us the greatness and the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. That sacrifice that was once for all. It's done, it's settled, it's over. And then he comes to this very practical portion here in verses 19 through 25. And there's several pieces of instruction for us, and we're really just focusing on the last one, verses 24 and 25 today. But let's read verses 19 through 25. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, 
not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Our focus today is on verse 24 specifically. And it says there, let us consider one another. Let us consider one another. What does it mean to consider one another? When I hear that, I obviously think positively. There's a positive connotation there wherein I am supposed to think of other people's needs and desires before I think of my own. That would be being considerate of others. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, it says this, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That would be to consider one another. You know, we tell our kids this when they reach for the whole, the whole pile of chicken nuggets, right? We tell them, hey, save some for others. Be considerate, right? Maybe it's not your kids, but I know I heard that a lot growing up. Be considerate. Save some for your brothers. Because a lot of times, you know, in a large family, it's first come, first serve, right? And sometimes we get that, that mentality and we just got to go for it. I get what I can get for myself, but that's not being considerate of others. Ephesians 4.32, a very familiar verse, it says, Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. That kindness and that consideration that we are to have for others. But notice the next two words. Let us consider one another to provoke. Whoa, what just happened? When you hear the word provoke, do you think positive or negative? Almost always negative, right? There's a negative connotation with being provoked to do something. So he takes the positive of consider one another and follows it up with this word provoke. You think, wait, what happened here? We just went from positive connotation to negative connotation. What is he getting at here? It's not necessarily the word we would expect, right? We would expect consider one another to something nice, not provoke. But it seems to be a pretty good translation. I think the, the jarring effect of it, when we think about that word, the positive and the negative put together, I think it's helpful to us. Now, the Greek word for the word provoke is paroxysmos. I was working on saying that all week. Paroxysmos, right? And it means to sharpen or to stimulate or to provoke, but it's usually used in a negative way. And the example is in Acts 15 when Paul and Silas disagree with each other. They have a sharp contention over John Mark. Remember, one said, I want to take John Mark. One said, I don't want to take John Mark. And they were contending with one another. And the same Greek word is used. Now, their provoking of each other was so intense that what happened? They split. They separated. And that's the same word that's used here, that provoking that caused them to act and, and depart from one another. One commentary, as we try to understand this word provoke, one commentary says that this provoking includes an incitement to action. That when we provoke, we incite to action. When I heard, heard the word incite, when I read that, the first thing I thought of was to incite a riot. You ever heard that phrase put together? Somebody has incited a riot. And when someone incites a riot, the purpose is not just to get people stirred up, is it? It's not just to get them to feel a certain way. 
It's to get, it's to get them to do what? To take action. To get them so stirred up that they want to go and fight. So this idea of provoking action is the end result, not just the stirring up. It's action, not just an attitude. Now, if anybody understands the word provoke, I know it is this group of people, brothers. You have a brother? We as brothers are the best at provoking our brothers. I grew up with three brothers, and we knew what buttons to push to get somebody to act a certain way. Don't smile at me. You've done the same thing, right? We all, we, we all know exactly what it is that will set them off. For me and my older brother, which many of you have met, he, he, would, he knew exactly what he could do to get me to punch him. And I had a punching problem when I was younger. I'd punch him right here in the arm all the time. And he knew exactly what to do to get me to do that so that what would happen, I would get in trouble. He knew exactly what buttons to push. So he provoked me to get me to act a certain way. And that may be a good way to understand this word. To provoke someone is, in essence, to push their buttons in order to get them to act a certain way. Now, here's the key, because it does sound kind of negative so far, right? Let us consider one another to provoke. But look at the next words. Let us consider one another to provoke. We are to provoke them not to riot or to punch someone, no, the buttons we are to push are to provoke them to what? To love and good works. That's the key. And now that releases all the tension of that negativity of provoke, doesn't it? Because now what we are pushing their buttons towards, what we are provoking them towards is what? Love and good works. And if, if that's the action that we are to provoke somebody to, love and good works, provoke away, right? I would hope that you would provoke me in that way. That I would be spurred on to have more love and more good works. See, the morality of the provoking is determined by the object of the provocation. What we provoke someone towards determines the rightness or the wrongness of our provoking. In Ephesians 6, 4, the, uh, the, the King James Version uses the, the word provoke as well, and it says that fathers... Do not provoke your children unto wrath. And we understand that, right? Fathers, don't provoke your children unto wrath. Why? Because wrath is something that we don't need any more of, especially with our kids. There's enough of it. Don't provoke them towards more of it. But here in Hebrews 10, 24, he says we are to provoke people to love and good works. Why? Because we can always use more love and good works. Provoke them towards that. When you think of that phrase, love and good works, it's really kind of the, the, the basic summary of Christian activity. No? Love and good works. Good works that are motivated by love, love that is the impetus for our good works. Love of others, love of Christ, that provides the energy behind our good works. And that really is a summary of the basics of, of Christian activity. In fact, in John verse 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says this, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know 
that ye are my disciples if you have love to one another. What is he saying? He's saying this, they will know us by our love. They will know us by our love. And he also says that you will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. So our love for others is a proof of our salvation. Now, since love is a proof of salvation, shouldn't we provoke each other to more love and thus proving our salvation even more? Does that that make sense? Same way with good works. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we were created in Christ for good works. So when you provoke someone to good works, you are encouraging them to live out the purpose for which they were created in Christ. That's a good aim. That's something good to provoke someone towards. In 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 18, Paul tells Timothy to charge, or could we say provoke the rich, that they should be rich in good works. If you're good at pushing people's buttons, can I encourage you to push the buttons that encourage more love and that encourage more good works? You say, well, hey, I do struggle with being a button pusher. I have that problem. I I provoke people. So maybe maybe provoke is too strong of a word for you because you're like, hey, I can do it more now. Well, let's try a little bit of a, a softer word. There's a couple other ways this same Greek word is translated. The ESV and the New King James use the word stir up. So let us consider one another to stir up love and good works. Maybe that helps us understand it a little bit better. The NASB uses the word stimulate. Let us consider one another to stimulate love and good works. And then the NIV uses the word spur. I think spur is a good way to think of it. Let us consider one another to spur one another on to love and good works. Can I get the full picture there now of what it means to provoke someone unto good works and love? Before we go any further in, the, in this ver- these verses, though, I want to jump back in the phrase and clarify one thing. It says there that we are to consider who? One another. Who is the one another? Who is the one another? That phrase comes up a lot in the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings. We saw it a couple times already in our scripture reading in Romans 12. It said to love one another, show hospitality to one another. We saw it in just the passage I read just a minute ago in John 13, that we are to love one another. So who are the one another people? Well, look at verse 25, because that answers the question for us. Who are the one another people? Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Verse 25 answers who the one another are, and that is this. The one another people are the ones with whom you are to faithfully assemble. Who's that? The church fellow followers of Jesus Christ. Take a look around. That's who? That's the one another here in Hebrews 10 and throughout Scripture. This is your your family. These are the ones that encourage you, the ones you laugh with, the ones you cry with, the ones you grow with, the ones you serve, the ones you take correction from. This is the one another right here, the church of Jesus Christ. And the blunt truth is what? We need one another. No man is an island. 
No man is an island unto himself. We have, God made us for community. We need each other. And it says in verse 25 that even more so as you see the day approaching. What does that mean, the day approaching? Probably a reference to the day of the Lord. The time of the end of things on this earth as we know them. Saying as we are getting closer and closer to that point, you need each other even more. Can I say it this way? The church, this church, is a brotherhood of fellow believers in the Son of God who gather around the Word of God by the power of the Spirit of God to do the will of God. And we need each other in order to do it well. I can't do it on my own. You can't do it on your own. We have to have each other. And may I say too, if maybe, maybe church is a new thing for you or, or the, the talk about Christ is a new thing, this whole idea of brotherhood in the church, what does that mean to be a part of the family of God? Why is this a family? I thought I had my own family. It's because of a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's because by faith, by grace through faith, faith has been put in Christ to forgive us of our sins and to bring us into his family. That's why we have this brotherhood here. And if you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, and you say, I, I certainly am not a part of the family of God because I've never trusted in Christ, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. You can enter into that relationship with him and thus also a relationship with a whole new family. That's a beautiful thing whereby we become the children of God and brothers and sisters of one another. I think this idea of the spirit of brotherhood is also a helpful reminder for us and a caution. It's a caution for us regarding how we should provoke one another unto love and good works. All right, here's the caution. Because that word provoke can sometimes have that negativity with it. You say, well, how am I going to provoke someone else? Here's the caution, and the spirit of brotherhood helps us to think through this. We do not provoke one another from a position of superiority. Saying something like, well, look what I'm doing. You should be like me. No. Galatians 6.3 says, be careful. Don't think you're something when you are nothing. So don't go around saying, hey, I'm doing it. You should act like I act. No, that's from a, that's a, that's, that's from a level of superiority. We're not superior to anybody. Instead, we are to provoke one another to love and good works from a spirit of brotherhood. What does that look like? It looks like this. Come along with me, let's do it together. Come along with me, let's express love and good works to others together. That's a spirit of brotherhood, not superiority. And so I think that, that idea of us being the church together as one another is helpful, a helpful caution to us that we don't take this idea of provoking others as I'm doing it, you're not, I'm better. No, it's us working together to do it. So in a spirit of brotherhood, how do we do it? How do we provoke each other to more love and good works? What's the application of this for today? I want to give you three basic reasons, or three main ways, excuse me, three basic ways that we can provoke one another to love and to good works. Number one, by teaching. By teaching. That's what I'm doing right now. Teaching the word to encourage others to live by it but I do hope that I'm not the only one that does it. There are many other qualified and able teachers that can teach the Word of God and should. Our Sunday school teachers do it. 
our children's church and, and youth ministry workers do it. Our, our Wayside Christian School staff does it. We come along, and by teaching, we are trying to provoke others to love and to good works. Adults, parents, and any, any capable uh, breathing adult here today, remember, you must do it as well. That verse in Ephesians 6, 4, the one that says, Fathers, do not provoke your children unto wrath, it also says something else. Remember the rest of the verse? But actually do what? Don't provoke them to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture, the training and admonition of the Lord. So don't provoke them to wrath, but you better be teaching them. You better be training them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We teach, and thus we provoke others to love and to good works. And we all have a role, and we all have an opportunity to teach. And let, let me remind us that we are all teachers in some way, whether good or bad. We all teach in some way. And that leads us to the second way that we can do it. And this one might be even more important than the teaching, and that is number two, by example. How do we provoke others to love and to good works? By teaching, yes, but also by example. My grandfather always said, more is caught than taught. Understand that? More is caught. More is seen by example than, than is ever taught by someone. More is caught than taught. People will see you much, much more than they hear you. And your teaching will mean very little if your example does not back it up. You can say anything that you want to say. If your example does not back it up, it will not matter. When we have love and have good works, eyes are watching. And they will be encouraged, they will be provoked, they will be spurred on to do the same by your example. It's like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow my example as I follow Christ. Grandpa, Grandma, the next generation has been watching you. Don't blame all their problems on them. They've been watching that example from others. Teenagers here today, you have no idea how much the little kids of this church will look up to you and want to be like you. Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise your youth. And Timothy at this point was probably a young man, not just a teenager. Let no one despise your youth, but you be the example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Be the example. All of us have an example to set. And through that example, hopefully we can be the ones that will provoke someone else to more love and good works. Paul, Paul uses this in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 7. Paul gives an example of sacrificial giving. And he says to the, he's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, the Macedonian church that I've interacted with before, they have done great at sacrificial giving. And he's telling the Corinthian church, you should follow their example. So he's using the example of another church to the Corinthian church to say, come along and do follow their pattern and do what they've done. That example that others can follow. Actions always speak louder than words. Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your talk talks. Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. If you can say it, it's a great phrase. <laughs> but it's true. Your walk always talks louder than your talk. 
So we teach, yes, we have to, but we also set it by example. We spur each other on to love and to good works by example. Thirdly, don't miss this one. I think it's one that we often kind of forget by prayer. Provoke one another to love and to good works by prayer. Through prayer, we can invoke the power of God to provoke ourselves and others to more love and good works. Don't, don't miss this one. So I think sometimes in our, in our long lists of physical needs on a prayer list, we can often forget the need to pray for each other to be built up spiritually. And that's what we're asking God through prayer. God, spur and stir the heart of that person. Stir my heart first that I would have more love and more good works. Have you prayed for me to be provoked to more love and good works? I hope so, because I need it. I need it badly. And I want to do the same for you, to pray for you that you would have more love and more good works. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians 1. I want to show you the example that Paul sets for us with this idea of praying to provoke someone to love and good works. Colossians 1 verse 9. Colossians 1, we're going to read verse 9 and following. Notice what Paul says here and watch the spiritual fervor that his prayer has. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Do you notice those first few verses? Paul says, I am praying for you that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will that you would walk worthy of the Lord, that you would be fruitful in every good work. Paul is praying that God would provoke others, the people he's ministering to, the people he's writing to, that God would use his prayer to provoke others to more love and to good works. That's a good example for us. Don't miss that in our prayers. Don't miss that as we pray for one another and lift each other up to be built up spiritually in prayer. As we conclude our, our thoughts on this, I'd like us to think about the story of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. I know that's kind of a big jump from Hebrews to, to the story of Ruth. I want you to think through this with me. In chapter 1, if you know the story of, of Ruth and Naomi, especially early on, in chapter 1, Naomi returns to her homeland having lost her husband and having lost both of her sons. She is devastated. And she says in Ruth chapter 1, verse 20, she says, Do not call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Why Mara? Mara means bitter. She was bitter. She was angry at God for what had happened to her. And she comes back to her homeland at the lowest of lows. That's chapter 1. Fast forward in the story to about the end of it. And it says in chapter 4, verses 14 to 17, this is said about Naomi. Listen to what's said about Naomi. Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a kinsman, 
and may his name be famous in Israel. May he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor woman gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. When she took that grandson and she, she, she cared for it, there was rejoicing. How does she go from being bitter at God to being blessed by God at the end of the story? What's well, all that happened in between and all that God used in between? And let me just kind of summarize it for us. God used Boaz to minister to Ruth by allowing her to glean generously in his fields, which encouraged Ruth to minister to Naomi by providing for her basic needs of food and shelter, which encouraged then Naomi to minister to Ruth by explaining the customs so that Ruth could marry Boaz. Boaz then ministers to Ruth through marriage, right, by providing a future and security for her. Boaz and Ruth together then are able to minister to Naomi by providing a grandson and a future and a future joy for Naomi. Do you see that? Each one encouraging the other. Each one helping one another help one another. That's beautiful. How does a person go from bitter to blessed? That's how. God loves to work through people helping one another help one another. I pray that, that our church would be one that encourages, that, that spurs on, that provokes each other to more love and good works. Would you pray with me this morning? Thank you, God, that you are so good to us.